0: You take your Bibles, turn along with me to Romans. For the last couple of weeks, we've been considering the theme of Christmas comfort, and so we've been taking a break from our regular series through the book of Romans, but this morning we will find ourselves back in this same great letter. We've been going through Romans chapter 1, but this morning I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. as we talk about Christmas comfort. There are a lot of comforts associated with the Christmas season. For many of us, we'll enjoy the comfort of some time off work. Maybe some of you have to work. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, I'm sorry about that, but thank you for serving our community. Some of you s- serve as police officers or you serve in healthcare positions that require you to be there and So we're grateful for your service, but most of us get a little time off, and that provides some Christmas comfort. Christmas movies also provide some Christmas comfort. Game nights, driving around looking at Christmas lights. Our family, we do a Christmas light scavenger hunt, and we have two teams. We divide up into two teams, two cars, and the competition is fierce. I only hope you're not out on the roads that evening when we do it but there can only be one winner and the other team's a loser so but all of these things provide some level of christmas comfort but the comforts we've been looking at are not the comforts that come and go with the season the comforts we've been looking at these past few sundays also don't get packed away for 11 months along with the christmas decorations These comforts, the comforts we've been talking about, are the sustaining, perpetual comforts that are ours because of God's gospel promises to us in Jesus Christ. These gospel promises from God can be traced throughout the Old Testament, but began to be realized with the birth of Jesus. And that is why the gospel comforts, these gospel comforts of Christmas comfort have their foundation in the incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We began two weeks ago in this series by looking at God's command to His prophets and His preachers to bring Christmas comfort to His people. God commands prophets and preachers to comfort His people. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem, and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God wants His people to be comforted with the great and precious promises of His gospel, promises that began to be realized at Christmas with the birth of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at the Christmas comfort that comes to us Because God is with us in Jesus. God revealed to us in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. Let me read that passage for us once again. The birth narrative recorded for us in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Where Matthew says that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. God close to us. God living among us. Just as God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and later in the temple, so now God would dwell among his people in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God in the flesh, tabernacling among His people. God came near. He came near to us. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion, God came near. God came near, not in judgment, which is what we deserved, but He came near instead to bless and provide salvation. God came near to provide forgiveness of sins. God came near to provide eternal life to all who believe on Jesus. In short, God came near, not in judgment, but in grace and mercy and forgiveness. The Christian can enjoy the Christmas comfort that through Jesus, God is with us. God is with us to bless, to save, to guide and protect. And ultimately, God is with us To lead us home. This morning I want us to see the Christmas comfort that is found in the truth that God is for us. God is not only with us, but He is for us. As Christians, God is for us, beloved. With the coming of Jesus, we see clearly that God is for us. Now when I say that God is for us, I mean that God is determined to bless us. That God is on our side. He's committed to our blessing. Now that's some good news, isn't it? And it's absolutely true. For the Christian, God is on our side. We've got some power in our corner. We've got someone for us who controls all things and works all things according to his good pleasure. And his good pleasure happens to be our good, our blessing, and our delight. God is for us. Much of the time, however, many of us aren't so convinced that God is for us. After all, isn't God kind of frustrated with us? Isn't he kind of exasperated with us? Isn't he tired of us? Maybe, isn't he angry at us? Even as Christians, we know that we still sin, we still struggle with unbelief, we still get angry and we worry and we're envious and we sometimes lie and we're sometimes lazy and sometimes we're ungrateful and we complain. All these things are still true of us even though we are Christians, so isn't God really just putting up with us? Isn't he really just annoyed with us? I can tell you the answer this morning based on the word of God and the gospel promises we see there. The answer is no. Christian God is not annoyed with you. He is not tired of you. He is not irritated by you. He is not angry with you. He is for you. What fundamentally describes and depicts The relationship between God and us is that He is now for us. At other times, we go through trials and difficulties. We experience suffering and disease and job losses and broken relationships and financial troubles and the loss of loved ones. And we're tempted to think, God has got to be against me. But this couldn't be farther from the truth. Christian, God isn't against you. He is for you. He is for you and there's no way He could possibly be any more for you than He already is. He is for you right now to the max. There's perhaps no clearer passage in all the scriptures that speaks to God's disposition toward us, the fact that He is for us as Christians, than the one we find in Romans chapter 8. And that's what I want us to direct our attention to this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Look with me there. Romans 8, 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Beloved, hear the word of the Lord and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, what we have here is your declaration that you are for us as believers. And we're so grateful to know that. We need to hear it. We need to be comforted by it. We need to be convinced of it. So Lord, may your spirit be at work among us doing just that. And even calling unbelievers to yourself, taking them from being the enemies of God to being the allies of God. And more than that, the children of God. And more than that, heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Do your miraculous work in all our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want us to see together this morning is that Romans 8, 31 through 32 teaches us that the gift of God's Son serves as the greatest proof that God is always for us. The child born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger, is proof positive irrefutable evidence that God is for us. Now let's follow Paul's argument here a little bit in Romans 8:31 and 32. Paul argues here in Romans 8:31 that God is for us. And his argument involves a conditional clause. Now put your grammar hats on for a minute. I know it's Christmas break. And you want to veg out mentally, but you can't do that for the next couple of minutes, all right? There's a conditional clause here. If God is for us, that if word is a condition. Creating a conditional clause. Now there are three main kinds of conditional clauses in the Greek language. There is the first class condition, which assumes the condition to be true. There is the second class condition, which assumes the condition to be false. And there is the third class condition, which presents merely a hypothetical situation. The if here in chapter 8 and verse 31 is a condition of the first class. Now that's important for what Paul is trying to lay out here. This is not a second class condition, meaning that Paul is not saying this. If God is for us, and we know He isn't, Paul is not saying that. He's not denying the truth that God is for us. Paul is also not using the third class condition here. So he is also not saying, let's just suppose for a moment, you know, just entertain this for just a second. Let's suppose that God were for us. What would life look like if that were true? No, Paul is not saying that either. Paul is using the first class condition, which assumes the condition to be true. Therefore, Paul is saying this, if God is for us, and we know with certainty that He is, another way of translating this would be, since, God is for us, since we know, since we can be certain that God is for us. So Paul is saying here that God being for us is an established fact. God is indeed for us. Paul is calling us here to know with certainty and beyond all doubt that God is for us. So we know grammatically that Paul is saying that God is most definitely for us. That's the grammatical defense of this. The grammatical piece of the argument. But we also know this from the entire argument that Paul is making. Again, look with me at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Paul's conclusion that God is clearly for us is based on the argument that has preceded this conclusion. What is the conclusion that we should come to after considering these things? Paul asks, since God is for us, who can be against us? Now it begs the question, what is Paul talking about when he references these things? Well, let's go back to the immediate context. Look with me at verse 28. Romans 1.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. God is actively causing all things, everything that happens, all things to work together for good. This is what it looks like for God to be for us. He is causing the sovereign God of the universe, is causing all things to work together providentially so that it results in our good, our blessing. He is for us at all times in every circumstance, even on the dark days, even on the difficult days, the days of loss and pain and grief. God is still at work for us. God's being for us and His providential way of causing all things to work for our good are is further seen in His securing our salvation from beginning to end. And we see this in verses 29 through 30. It says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified this is often called God's golden chain of redemption where all of these acts of God are linked together like links in a chain unbreakable links making up God's golden chain of redemption a chain of five links that stretches from eternity past into eternity future Those whom God foreknew, Paul begins. Clearly, this isn't something that's just knowing truth ahead of time. This isn't God merely foreseeing faith in us, looking down the halls of time and seeing what we would do when faced with the decision of faith or not, of belief or not. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This isn't God foreseeing some faith in us, no. No. None of God's actions here are presented as being dependent on our fulfilling any condition, on our reacting in some certain way in the future. Rather, this foreknowledge is God's knowing us in love and commitment before we even existed. He foreloves us. He foreknows us, knowing us in love and commitment before we ever existed, before we ever did anything good or bad, before we ever believed or didn't believe. This foreknowledge of God is His setting, His unchanging, unearned, undeserved love upon us before the world ever existed and certainly before any of us ever existed. Next, Paul says that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. The word means that God destines us ahead of time to a particular future, to a particular end, to a particular purpose. And that purpose is conformity to Jesus Christ. So those upon whom God set His love, He also predestined them to be like Jesus. Paul continues, those whom God predestined, these He also called. God puts His eternal plan into effect in time and space and issues forth an effectual call. God summons us to Himself and we respond in faith. This calling is internal, it is specific, and it is effectual. It is a personal call unto faith. God executes His plan by calling us to Himself and to salvation in Jesus and we respond to His effectual call with faith. Next it says, those he called, he also justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous in God's sight. Though we were sinners and alienated from God because of our sin, as a result of his effectual call and our response to that effectual call of belief, we are justified. We are sinners who are declared righteous in his sight. We are saved. But Paul doesn't stop there, because God doesn't stop there. Those whom God justified, He also glorified. To be glorified is to be made like Jesus. It is to be perfectly, be perfect like Him. It is to be holy like Him. It is to always do what is pleasing to God, is to be free from sin. This is our future. This is what we as Christians are headed for we are headed for glorification. This is what God has predestined us for. This is what God is going to bring about, our glorification, our complete Christ-likeness. And notice too here that it is presented as being in the past tense, as having already happened. Because our glorification is inseparably linked to God's foreknowledge and all the other links in God's golden chain of redemption, it is sure to happen. So sure that it that Paul can speak of it as having already occurred. You can bank on it. This is going to happen because all these other links in the chain are there. The last link in the chain must be there also, and that's glorification. That is your future, Christian. That is where you're headed. Because the one who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This is how our God is for us. This is the greatness of our salvation. God is actively ensuring that all things work together for our good. He is also securing our eternal salvation from beginning to end. And to all of this, Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? What is the conclusion of the matter? What is the only logical thing to conclude from all that I have shared? Paul says, if God is for us, as I have just proven irrefutably that He most certainly is, then who can be against us? What enemy can come up against us and be successful? What evil plot or scheme can overcome and thwart God's perfect plan of redemption? No one and nothing can overcome God and His plans for us. But there is yet another, still more convincing argument that Paul employs to prove beyond all doubt that God truly is unreservedly for us. And that comes in verse 32. And this is where the Christmas comfort comes in, to view most clearly. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? is the season of gift giving and our gift giving is but an imaging of god's greatest gift giving our god is for us and the first coming of jesus christ is the greatest evidence of that fact god is for you and he proved it once and for all by sending his son jesus into the world God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. Delivered Him to be born. Delivered Him to live a perfect life. Delivered Him over to die for us and rise again the third day. And then Paul reasons this way. If God has already given us His Son, how will He not also freely give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. God's already given us that which is most precious to Him, that which is most valuable. His own Son, Jesus. And if He's already given us that which is most precious to Him, won't He give us gifts that are good but of lesser value as well? Of course He will. He's already given us the moon. He'll give us lesser gifts as well. He'll give us everything we need. And beyond. This is how our God is for us providing for our every need, providing for our greatest need by sending the object of his greatest value and love, his own son, to die for you and I, to take our sins upon himself, to bear our guilt on the cross, to be buried and rise again the third day. But there's even more evidence that God is for us beloved and the evidence for that is seen in the words these things that paul talks about in verse 31 yes these things refers to the immediate context but more than that i think paul intends for us to understand in these things all that paul has been saying in the book of romans and really from chapter 5 through chapter 8 But these things that leads Paul to conclude that God is most certainly for us, that He's on our side, that He's working all things for our good, goes back farther than the immediate context. It goes back at least to chapter 5. Chapters 5 through 8 speak of the glories and blessings of our justification through faith in Jesus Christ. And reading through those chapters, you can catalog as I did, over 30 ways in which God is for us. And I've listed them for you. But I'm going to read them here in just a minute. Because I want you to be overwhelmed with the grandeur of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. I want you to be overwhelmed with the truth that God is for you, Christian. So in your church app, if you don't have the church app, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? In your church app, All right, under, I think it's uh, Sunday Morning Resources or something like that. You can click on that and you'll find Sermon Notes. Click on Sermon Notes and you'll see this all listed. All right, so everything I'm going to list for you is, is in your Sermon Notes there. So you don't need to scramble to try to get it all down. But I want you to listen and you can follow along in the Sermon Notes there. That might be helpful to you. And I want you to hear all the ways, 38 ways God is for us in Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8, all right? Listen to how God is for us through faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, God is for us by justifying us, chapter 5, verse 1. God is for us by granting us peace with Him, chapter 5, verse 1. God is for us by giving us the grace in which we stand, chapter 5, verse 2. God is for us by saving us from His wrath, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. God is for us by reconciling us to himself chapter 5 verse 10 God is for us by giving us salvation as a free gift chapter 5 verses 15 and 16 God is for us by giving us the gift of righteousness chapter 5 verse 17 God is for us by justifying us unto life chapter 5 verse 18 God is for us by giving us eternal life chapter 5:21 chapter 6 verse 22 and 23 God is for us by giving us newness of life, chapter 6, verse 4. God is for us by freeing us from being slaves to sin, chapter 6 and verse 6. God is for us by making us slaves of righteousness. Instead, chapter 6 and verse 18. God is for us by making us His slaves. Chapter 6 and verse 22. God is for us by sanctifying us. Chapter 6 and verse 22. God is for us by promising to deliver us from the body of this death through Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. God is for us by declaring no condemnation for us through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1. God is for us by setting us free from the law of sin and death, chapter 8, verse 2. God is for us by fulfilling the requirements of the law for us, chapter 8 and verse 4. God is for us by giving us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, chapter 8, verses 9 and 11. God is for us by giving Christ to dwell in us, chapter 8, verse 10. God is for us by leading us by the Holy Spirit of God chapter 8, verse 14. God is for us by making us sons of God, chapter 8, verse 14. God is for us by adopting us as His sons, chapter 8, verse 15. God is for us by giving us the Spirit's testimony that we are the children of God, chapter 8, verse 16. God is for us by making us His heirs, chapter 8, verse 17. God is for us by making us fellow heirs with Christ, chapter 8, verse 17. God is for us by glorifying us with Christ, chapter 8, verses 17. And 18, God is for us by promising that our future glory will be far greater than our present suffering. Chapter 8, verse 18. God is for us by having the Holy Spirit intercede for us. Chapter 8, verse 27. God is for us by having the Holy Spirit help us in our weaknesses. Chapter 8, verse 26. God is for us in causing all things to work for our good. Chapter 8, verse 28. God is for us by calling us according to His purpose. Chapter 8, 28. And God is for us in chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, by foreknowing us, predestining us, by conforming us to the image of His Son, by calling us, by justifying us, and by glorifying us. If you're thankful for that, thank the Lord. Amen. Amen. Beloved, our God is for us. Don't ever believe anything else. God is for us. He has always been for us. He is for us today. He will always be for us. He can do no other. Our God is on our side. Our God is working for us, providing for us, paving the way for us. Beloved, our God is for us. Nothing and no one can ever change that. And nothing and no one can ever come up against that and thwart the purposes of God for you. Now God being for us is not some new novel truth revealed in the New Testament alone. It's always been true of believers. God has always been for His people. Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 56.9 Then my enemies will turn back in that day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Mark it down. This I know God is for me. So don't believe the lies of Satan. Don't believe the lies of your flesh that questions God's goodness, that questions whether or not He's for you, whether or not He's done enough for you. Christian, this truth that God is for us should always be at the forefront of our minds. Reminding ourselves, preaching the truth to ourselves, preaching the gospel to ourselves, that God is not angry with us, that He's not against us, that He's not ignoring us, that He's not tired of us. Rather, He is for us. Unequivocally, unchangingly, unceasingly for us. He is on your side. He is in our corner. And this should affect us should affect the way we view God. He is graciously for us. It should affect the way we approach God. He is for us. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace. It should affect the way we worship God. We should rejoice and praise Him because He is for us and He welcomes us into His presence. It should affect our outlook on life. Christian, You should be the most optimistic person in the world because God is for you. Yes, the walls are all falling down. I get it. But God has a purpose in all of that and that purpose is for your good and my good. We have reason for optimism because God is for us. It should affect our perspective of the future. We have a glorious future. That golden chain of redemption is linked together by God's power and grace. And it can't be broken. You are headed for heaven. You are headed for Christ's likeness, However far off that may seem now, that is your future. Secured by God because He is for you. It should affect the way we view trials and difficulties. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's hard. But even in that, God has His purposes. God is working out His good in your life. Because He's for you. The fact that God is for us should affect every aspect of our lives. Beloved, our God is for us. And the truth of Christmas and the babe born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger shouts this truth over us. God is for us. In Jesus, God is for us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, You may be asking yourself the question, well, is God for me? Is He for me? Friend, the truth of Scripture teaches us that God can't be for you if you don't believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, the Son of God, then you reject God, the Father. And you're headed for judgment because you're an enemy of God. That's just a hard truth that God's Word teaches us. But God's Word also teaches us that God loves you and that He sent His Son into the world to save sinners. John three sixteen For God so loved the world that He gave, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You believe in the Lord Jesus and you will have eternal life. Not only will you have eternal life, but you'll be taken from being the enemy of God to being the friend of God. Not just the friend of God, but the son or child of God, the daughter of God. And not just the son or daughter of God, but an heir of God's promises and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. (laughs) Beloved, this is the merciful, gracious, glorious truth of the Christmas message that God gave His Son to redeem rebels and put them on a new path and set them on a new trajectory and give them new life, give them hope and a future, to give them glory, shared glory with Him. Unthinkable, unspeakable grace. That's what Jesus came to give. Grace upon grace. This is the truth of Christmas comfort that should comfort us all year long. That should give us confidence knowing that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Grace shown to us manifestly and supremely in the gift of your Son, Jesus. A gift that proved beyond all shadow of a doubt that you are for us, for you gave us that which is most costly, most loved, most prized by you, your dearly loved Son. You sent him here into this world not to be honored and loved and valued as he deserved. You sent him on a death mission. You sent him knowing that he would be rejected, despised. You sent him in order to redeem a people for your own name and your own glory. And We're so blessed to be counted among that number. I pray for any here who aren't sure if they're a Christian or maybe they're sure they aren't that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and find in Him peace, joy, life, and salvation. And I pray that we as Christians today would take heart, find courage, and that never-ending comfort that comes from your gospel promises, secured by that baby in Bethlehem, born, born to be king, born to rule, born to die, and born to save. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.